Breaking the Glass, episode 22. This is probably my biggest learning out of one of the biggest mistakes that I made. So the background is that I've always been a type A um, list-making high achiever. I wanted to work for one of the top firms in whatever discipline I chose. It was public accounting, so I wanted to be one of the big four. So I wanted, by the end of my first year, to be recognized as one of the top in my cohort. I was sitting for the CPA exam, and so my goal, of course, was to be among that top 10%. And so I had these goals. A year later, I'd hit all my goals. I passed right. the CPA, was well-known you know, within the office as a high performer, had been put on the you know, kind of the a, A-list client that was the best client of the office because of my performance. I had done my CPA, um, and I was working for the firm I wanted to work for, and I was miserable, mm. miserable. I would cry in the morning on my way to work, and, um, and work was fine. It was great people, a great company. I just was miserable. And I would you know, cry on the way home, and, and I remember just being flabbergasted because I had hit all of my goals, and yet I was miserable. And I remember asking, like, what, how can this be? How can I achieve my goals and still be so unhappy? And the lesson I came away with is, you know, there's no use winning a, winning a race if you're running on the wrong track. Right. And what I realized is that I had set my goals in a very haphazard way. And so it's not about whether or not I hit a goal. It's about have I set the right goals. Welcome to the Breaking the Glass Show with TQ Sinkungu. Together we'll dig inside the success stories of people of color and share those stories to inspire you. Then we'll break down their path to show you what they did so you can learn from their wisdom and follow in their footsteps. On this week's episode, I interview Miriam Kudiza. Miriam and I have a personal relationship through a relative of mine, her husband. When I met her and heard about her through my mom, it was just an amazing report of her husband getting a great woman. Uh, she went to Harvard Business School. She worked at Google. My mother thought she was amazing, and so I know she's going to be a great woman. Whenever you listen to her today, you'll notice that she has a very calm and understated persona, but it belies a fire underneath that surface. Miriam was born in Uganda like I was, and her family was an immigrant, first to Canada and then to California, where she ultimately went to UCLA undergrad and was driven as a person. That drive lasted throughout her life. It led her to do very well at UCLA and then pursue multiple internships to get some early experience in the workforce that led her down a path that made her excellent in the workplace after all. In fact, the two programs, Inroads and SEO, are two programs I never heard of. You should check them out on the website to find out how to get involved with those things because they're great ways and opportunities that folks are reaching out to help minorities grow into the workplace and succeed there early on in their careers. After those internships, both at PricewaterhouseCoopers and Morgan Stanley, she went on from there to a career in the public accounting business with Ernst & Young, one of the big four. She set high goals there and achieved them all, but was not satisfied. This realization came at a time whenever she decided to go get her MBA at Harvard. So she spent time getting her MBA, first getting adjusted and excelling there. And she got into this place at Harvard where she was comfortable knowing who she was because she, over her life, realized and recognized and dealt with the issues that she came up with of not fitting in. She was accused of acting white by those in the black community because of how she spoke and how much she liked school. I experienced the same thing and know the pain that that can cause. At the same time, being an immigrant, she didn't feel totally integrated into the immigrant culture. 
And then she also, being black, couldn't fit into white culture. But by the time she got to Harvard, she figured out who she was, knew her place, and was very comfortable with it. And as a result, she was able to network well, fit in where she needed to, and succeed there. And although, like I said, she had some success in the accounting business, it was unfulfilling, as she'll tell us about in the interview. What happened there was fortuitous is that she got an opportunity to be able to do an internship after her MBA at Procter & Gamble in the HR business. She led a team of interns to do a big project, and that's where she found her calling in human resources. She was able to help people and work in ways to advance the careers of others by being a key source of wisdom and of, of advice for senior executives at major corporations. And although she enjoyed working at Procter & Gamble, she wanted to be closer back to home, move from the East Coast back to the West Coast in California and her family. And she could only work for the best like she had done throughout her whole career. She wanted the best. And the best at this time was Google. So she applied there, got into an HR position at Google and did very well there. She's been there for nearly 10 years, providing critical business advice to execute some of the most important projects and lines of business at Google. And what's interesting is it didn't stop there. Knowing who she is, who she wants to be, she followed on now with a career in the real estate investing business. We'll talk a little bit about where she's doing there. And you'll get the chance to see a person who I've known who who's a fun living person, always seems to have a smile on her face, very focused and, and a serious person when she needs to be, uh, but can have a good time, loves to dance, loves to have a good time, has an easy laugh and is super easy to get along with. You're going to enjoy the interview like I enjoyed it, as well as I enjoy my relationship with her. So please enjoy my interview with Miriam Kudiza. So Miriam, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here. Thanks for having me. For sure. And um, the way we start off is with what I like to call lightning round background. So why don't you give us a little flavor for what life was like growing up for you? Sounds good. So I was born in Uganda, East Africa, though I left when I was three. And so I'll start my memories probably a little bit later. Uh, By the time we had moved to Canada, I had a brother that was about two years younger than me, another brother that came a couple years after that. Um, And I do have an older sister. And so childhood, my mom was a stay-at-home mom until I was probably about nine or ten and she ran a daycare, I remember, out of our home. And so there'd be lots of kids around. And I've always loved children, so I'd be with her engaging them. And um, in my early early childhood, we were at my father's university, and there were a lot of students, a lot of families. That was a really fun environment. And then if I fast forward to high school, um, my mom was working then. My dad was a professor, though. So he was around a lot. He made every game, every event, because uh, he only had to be in the classroom a couple hours a week. I know he'd pick us up from school, and so we'd be in the university. Um, I remember I taught my little brother algebra, just playing in the classrooms while my oh, dad wow. was doing his thing. And uh, yeah, that is, that's my childhood. Lots of time with my brothers, and um, again, my sister was quite a bit older, so she was around as well, but we were really around the same age, and then lots of time with my parents. What sports did you play? I didn't play any sports. Okay. Um, what I did do was dance. I did African dance. And so we would perform, and I really enjoyed dancing. Very nice. Well, I've seen the results at the weddings and uh, <laughs> at the Kwanjala. So, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I, that it carried all the way through life, clearly. That's right. That's absolutely correct. I still enjoy dancing. 
And it's interesting. My mom does early childhood development, um, as you know. Uh, and uh, so your mom doing that is kind of a kind of a cool coincidence. Yeah. Yep. Now, how did you end up from Canada to you moved on from there to go to UCLA? Um, what took you all uh-huh. the way that distance? So we were in Canada because my dad was doing his Ph.D., and then when he started teaching as a faculty member, that moved us to California. And so I grew up, you know, my formative years in middle school and high school in California. And then, you're correct, my first degree I did at UCLA, which is Southern California. And it's interesting because I had always dreamed, um, gosh, as far back as I can remember, but certainly when I was 13, I have a very distinct memory um, of going to Stanford University. And I remember in high school, I would tell my teachers and and, you know, I'm going to go to Stanford. And, in fact, when I was in the ninth grade, one of our teachers did a project where she asked us to write letters to ourselves in 10 years. So we were all about 12 or 13, and um, I'd written my little letter, and she said, you know, explain what you think you'll be doing at 23 and, and you know, what you want out of life and talk about all the different aspects of your life. And so I'd written my letter. And, of course, in the letter it included that, you know, I would have – by that point, been graduating from Stanford unless I'd chosen to go to Harvard or, you know, I really wanted to go to one of those Ivy Leagues. Right. And sure enough, um, I got into Stanford but didn't go because my family couldn't afford to send me. Yeah. And so a large part of why I did end up at UCLA is because they offered me um, a very meaningful scholarship, and that was exciting. Um, but happy to say when I got that letter at 23, I had just got my acceptance into Harvard Business School. Very and at nice. that point, I could take out loans to pay for it myself. And so uh, to your question about why UCLA, um, really, it was it was a financial decision at that point. That uh, makes sense. I mean, I, too, am a, an immigrant, came when I was young, just a couple of months. And my parents, uh, yeah, we didn't we didn't have it to have them pay for college. So that's so why I ended up at the Air Force Academy. There was a free school. Plus, they paid you while you were there and a guaranteed job when you were done. So exactly. that totally makes sense. Yep. Yep. And you, you seem like you did a lot of um, internships while you were at UCLA. What what was the reason for wanting to do that? Yeah, I, you know, God is good because sometimes you don't even realize as you step into things how important they're going to be. And I would really encourage all my, you know, brothers and relatives and every child that I'm connected to in any way, I really tell them that um, internships are critically important not only to begin to expose you to the corporate environment, you know, as early as possible, but it really makes you quite competitive. So by the time you're graduating from college, you've already had a couple years of corporate experience, and that really differentiates you from many others. And so I lucked into a program called Inroads. Mm. And the mission of, and it's a program that's alive and well today. So for any young person that's listening, I'd encourage them to consider it. But their mission is to be one of the number one um, providers of talented minority youth to corporate America. And it was founded by um, a white man. And it was, I think he founded it around the time of Martin Luther King when he realized that it was really challenging for people of color to, you know, get into and succeed in corporate environments when, you know, for so many years um, we weren't provided that opportunity. And so for many young people during his generation, they didn't have any relatives or role models that had been there. And he really wanted to help increase the pipeline. So he thought, what if we went all across the country and found the most talented um, minority youth and early on gave them the opportunity to get exposed to corporate America, to get to work for some of the Fortune 500 firms that by the time they graduate, they're competitive, you know, to get these jobs. And so the program exists. Um, I started it 
when I graduated from high school, which is the earliest that you can get in. And the way the program works is that they train you, and then they have a career fair, and they have lots of corporate partnerships. And so you get a job. And so I got my first internship in public accounting. And uh, the goal is that you go back every summer so you continue to learn. And then, you know, as long as you do a good job, there's a very high chance that you get a full-time offer at the end of the summer to work there. So I had three really great years of work experience in, the, in public accounting in the big four firms, which is, which is great to have had that experience that young. Yeah, so one of the things I wonder about is how... Uh, like, first of all, what made you want it to go to an Ivy League school like a Stanford or Harvard in the first place? It's a great question. I am, um, maybe it was personality. I, uh, I just liked being among the best. And, and we didn't live that far from Stanford. We had done some programs at Stanford. We had one of my father's colleagues that did a program at Stanford. And I just always had the sense that it was one of the, you know, one of the most exclusive and, and um, uh, just kind of white shoe, top-notch kind of place, and that's where I wanted to be. Yeah. I think I was the same. I wanted to apply to a lot of those schools just to get in, to say that I did, <laughs> and then go wherever I got the most money, I think was my mindset. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how did you know about all of these different other programs like even now today this is the first time i feel like i've ever heard of inroads and and i've looked at a lot of these types of programs so how did you hear about them so young you know i i don't remember how i heard about inroads maybe they came to my school or i might have found them online and then i found that as i you know matriculated through college um i'd hear about more programs so i started out with inroads then i heard of another program called seo which is Sponsors for Educational Opportunity. And at the time that I did it, they were very focused on Wall Street and how can we get more people of color on Wall Street. And so a lady reached out to me when I was um, going, to, going into my senior year. No, June, yeah, senior year at university. Um, I had met her through the alumni program at UCLA because they're the ones that gave me the scholarship to go there. So she had always kind of kept an eye on me and, and kept an eye on how I was doing, and I had done quite well. And so she told me that, hey, there's this program I'd love for you to apply to. And it's an awesome, awesome program. It was like inroads on steroids. Um, So they also went looking for the best students across the country of color. You go and they um, match you with uh, one of the Wall Street firms, which are very competitive firms to get into. So I have been matched with Morgan Stanley. And it's a very intensive program because the kinds of kids that usually get in have parents or brothers or sisters that were bankers and they know all the things to do. And a lot of us didn't have any of that experience and didn't have anyone in our families that, you know, had worked on Wall Street. And so what the program would do is you'd work. And those kinds of jobs were very demanding. So I'd go into the office by 7 or 8 and I'd stay till midnight. Mm. Um, but the program, also, and I was lucky, I wasn't on the, I was in equity capital markets, so we didn't work as much as those that were on the, um, uh, the other side of the house, I'm forgetting now, but the ones that basically sold the business. And so those ones would work till 3 or 4 in the morning every wow. day. And so I at least got off at midnight. And, um, but the program also had training to kind of ramp us up to finance, and so every day between like five and, I don't know, for several hours, we'd leave to go to training. And then we'd have, you know, some of the most prominent folks at these different banks come and teach us about the debt markets and teach us about equity and teach us about, 
you know, various things in finance. And so it was a really, it was a really outstanding program. It was challenging. It was one of the most challenging summers I've had, but it was, it was a fantastic program. What, um, in order to be as effective as you were, because by the time you graduate college, you've already worked for PricewaterhouseCoopers and Morgan Stanley. Um, what does it take, you think, to be effective at getting access to all of these different types of opportunities? Good grades is very important. Um, usually these programs, you know, will have requirements in terms of the kind of grades that you get. And the more, um, the more competitive the program, kind of the higher the expectations will be. A lot of times you do have to write essays in their applications, and so you do need to have strong writing skills as well. Um, and then I think it's just exposure. So whether you have to look them up online or um, have people in your network that, that raise these to you or refer you to them, I'd say those are probably some of the things that helped me um, have the opportunity to do some of those programs. Would you consider yourself a pretty active networker? Hmm. You know, someone defined networking um, in a way that I liked. They said that networking is building relationships before you need them. Yeah. And so, you know, you have the surface kind of networking, which is shaking hands, kissing babies, you know, fast, like, talkers sort of thing, which I don't think is particularly effective. But, but really, to me, what networking is, is about building relationships. And if you sincerely build relationships, if you sincerely are curious about people and want to get to know people and are open to opportunities for you to add value to them, I think that's, that's powerful networking because then you start to build relationships with people that, that start to pay dividends, right? They want to see you successful. They want to help you. And so I'm a super friendly person. Um, and so I think it's easy and, and natural for me to, as I meet people to chat with them and get to know them and to be excited if I can help them in some way. And so I think by nature, yeah. It, it ends up working pretty well yeah. from a networking standpoint. How do you maintain your network? It's a great question, and it's hard, right? As a mom and a wife and I'm working and, and doing some side things, um, it's hard to have the time to continue to, to maintain them. But, you know, there are lots of studies that have shown that at the end of the day, the thing that really um, keeps people healthy and happy are those networks and those relationships. And so they're very much worth investing in. And so I think for me, I try to find times in my day and my week um, where I can just reach out to people. So sometimes it's calling them when I, on my drive, you know, one place or another or um, early in the morning or right before I go to bed. Um, I do try to reach out to people and, and just check in and say hello. And if I've read something that makes me think of them or if they come to me in my quiet time as I'm praying. I, I try really hard to make those connections at those times. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, I think that's a, a good reminder that it's not big things. I think sometimes I personally get caught up in, and you write some complicated, meaningful note to someone or something, but it could just be a small thing that's just, Hey, I was thinking about you. I think that's exactly right. It's funny. Cause I, I intended to write that note to a friend and it, it like, it was, and I've been busy. We just moved and are getting settled in and all this other stuff. And, and so I haven't sat down to actually do it. And then, um, it's been, it's, it's a couple of months that I've been thinking about, I need to do this. And then the friend sends me a text message. Hey, I've been thinking about you and, and it's good to hear from them, <laughs> but I felt horrible because <laughs> I could have just texted them, you know? Um, so yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a good reminder. 
Um, so you finish up there at um, in college and you get into the illustrious talk about the white shoe institutions. This is, this is the whitest of the shoes, Harvard University, Harvard Business School for, for your MBA. That's yeah. super impressive. Um, what was that experience like? You know, it's so funny because I, for a while I was reading essays and, and helping folks in my network that wanted to apply and were asking questions about it. And it's super exciting when you get in. And I always tell them when they first get that letter, and I can remember, right, when I got the letter, and I was so happy because no one ever thinks they can get in, and then you do, and it's just like a dream come true. And I always tell people, write down how you're feeling. Like, just take the time, write down how happy you are, how thankful you are, because inevitably what happened, um, so I'm excited, they tell us in January, and I'm happy, and I got into Harvard, and, and then you go and start school in the fall, and about a month and a half in, I remember telling my roommate, I'm so miserable. Mm. And not only am I miserable, I'm paying for this misery. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of money. Because part, oh my goodness. I mean, it's challenging, especially in the beginning, because you haven't quite figured out your survival skills yet. And so all of us go in, we're all, you know, type A, high achievers, want to do really well. And purposely, the program gives you us more work than you can get done. Mm. And so in the beginning, you just are really trying to plow through. And so you think, well, I just won't sleep. And I'll just, you know, you're in class till three or four. And then they give you a good 10, 12, 15 hours worth of work. Right. And, and so you're trying really hard to keep up and, and get everything done and do all your cases and do all your analysis. And, and about a month in, like your body starts to give out on you and you get sick and you're miserable and you're tired because you haven't been sleeping and you're stressed. <laughs> they have what they call the cold call. So um, you prep every night for the next day of classes, and in the morning, the professor will look at the class of you and say, Miriam, why don't you walk us through, you know, your analysis of this problem? Because the cases are always a business problem. And, And the other thing is that they believe in teaching through cases. So, for example, in accounting, it's not that you sit and then the teacher explains accounting to you. No, no, you're given an accounting problem. Mind you, if you've never seen accounting, you don't know anything about how to do accounting. And so you're given a case. And so you need to try to figure out the case, but you've never seen it before. And knowing the next day that you might be the person that the teacher says, why don't you walk us through how you did your analysis? And so there's all this pressure of not wanting to you know, not do well in front of your peers and um, and trying to learn things that you may not have seen before. And by the way, you have a peer, you know, set of peers that are brilliant. Yeah. And, and so it just, the beginning is hard. And I distinctly remember feeling miserable and wondering why I had done that to myself. And, and on top of that, knowing that I was paying for that misery. <laughs> um, but sure enough, you know, you kind of, things get better and, and you figure out that you don't have to do all that stuff that you actually were doing. And yeah. and then by your second year, you're coasting and life is good and <laughs> waking up 10 to 15 minutes before class. There's something in between like the, the, the being sick, like working yourself into sickness and coasting. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. How, how does, how did, and you're gifted, obviously, academically, you come from a strong academic background with your father being a professor and but what can you say in terms of how you make that transition from because some people may be making that transition from high school to college in the same way Mm, um how do you how do you make that transition to being to the coasting piece from the struggling piece 
I think in any situation or any kind of field, um, I like to think of it as a game. And games always have rules. And I think part of what you want to try to understand are what are the rules, right? What are the parameters for this particular game that I'm playing? And so the transition that I made at Harvard is when you start to understand, okay, well, A, let's understand how they grade, right? So it really is, is and I'm trying to remember, um, they didn't give us like individual grades. It was kind of like two or three categories you could be in. You could be in the top like 10%, the bottom, you know, 5 or 10% or middle 80 Wow. That's important to know, right? Because it means that either you're shooting to be in that top 10%, right. um, you always want to make sure you're not in the bottom, but the vast majority of you are going to end up in that big middle, right? So that's important to know. Then it was important to know that the way they structure it is they also put us in, in um, study groups. And so what you learn is that, okay, I don't have to do all the work myself. And so right. what you start to do is divide the cases amongst your study groups. Now, you still have to understand the material because the teacher doesn't call in the group. The teacher calls on you. But then you start to learn how do we divide and conquer but still get everyone else up to speed so that each person understands enough that you know, they can get through it if they have to, but you know, each of us kind of focuses on different cases so we can divide and conquer some of the work. And then, you know, by the end of the program, literally the whole class is a, is a group. And so each person only has to do a case like once in, you know, four or five months. But right. it takes a while to get there. So, um, and then what else? Even, even if you're called on, like you start to learn strategies, okay, it's 90 of us in this, or was it 100? 100 of us or 90 of us in this class, right? And every day the teacher's going to call on one of us. So what's the probability of me being caught? And then, you know, if I have to one or two nights not quite get to it, like, am I willing to take that risk? And right. so, um, and then you also build friendships. And, and so you kind of help each other. If someone happens to get called on, that can't quite do it. And so all those are start some of the rules and the tricks that you start to learn over time. And then that's how you get from, I'm trying to do everything by myself, buy the book, get it all done um, to a place where it's a much more reasonable kind of workload that you've figured out you actually need to get done. And there's always a little bit of risk involved, but you kind of manage that. And the other thing is you realize that the teacher generally won't cold call someone that's already spoken a lot. And so it's much better to volunteer to speak when you have something to say than being too quiet and then being a big risk. Get out of the queue. So all those sorts of tricks. Yeah, no, that's, that's really wise. And, And again, your networking comes heavily into play. Um, mm-hmm. building and, those relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you know, I, so I, I, I know you obviously on a personal level because your husband is a longtime family friend and, um, and, and since ever meeting you and knowing you, first of all, my mom was raving about you because of she, oh, you wouldn't believe her. She went to Harvard. She's so smart. She's so, she's got <laughs> such a nice place in, 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 in Silicon Valley and she, and she works for Google too. And oh, she's so amazing. <laughs> And um, and then meeting you, you're the nicest salt of earth person. But what's clear that comes through, and I think people can even hear it listening to you, is you have an extreme amount of confidence. That, that's that's what comes across to me. Um, hmm. And and you just seem very sure of what you bring to the table, and you just do that as well as you can. Um, I don't know if they're, I don't know about the weaknesses side, but but you you definitely play to your strengths very well, and and. I'm wondering with that at Harvard, you're the the first person I think I've interviewed that that went there. And I this is like the epitome of places where 
people of color could tend to struggle or be seen as not um, belonging. The whole um, just nationwide movement of affirmative action made people think that you're not there because you deserve it. Um, but you put your GPAs on LinkedIn, they're 3.9s up, down, left, and right everywhere you go. <laughs> so you obviously belong. But did you ever feel that, um, you, you know, that, that it seemed like you weren't supposed to be there uh, at all? Yeah, it's a really great question. I think that sense of do I belong. Um, and let me say this too, like imp- maybe not you personally feeling it yourself or you couldn't answer mm-hmm. that, but also from other people putting that on you. Uh, did, did they ever come at you yeah. like that? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think for me personally at Harvard, that wasn't an issue um, because I had had you know years of academic success and school has always been a place where I feel really comfortable. I think that issue, though, of do you belong is a really important one and there are different contexts in my life where that was a much bigger issue. Are you interested in going down that route or should we go down more of kind of that imposter syndrome? Because even at Google, um, that happens for a lot of, of people of color. I want to actually hear both. You tell me where you want to go. I want to hear okay. both. So <laughs> we'll, the, let's, let's start with how you felt, if you felt yourself that you belonged. Yeah. So when I was young, my parents went to Canada. That's when my dad was doing his PhD. And there were few, if any, you know, black families, probably also families of color um, that were in that community. And so from a very young age, I was different. My hair was different. Uh, The food that I brought was different because we were immigrants. And so, you know, we brought our local food to school. And I remember distinctly my mom telling me that when I was, gosh, probably five or six years old, at the school I went to, the teacher had an activity of the kids cutting out, you know, paper, colored paper to make angels. And the only paper that was provided was, you know, peach colored paper. Right. And so my mom said the teacher told her that I, even at five or six, had gone up to her and said, well, can I have some brown colored paper so I can make an angel whose color, you know, is similar to mine. Wow. And it, it blows you away to think of a child that young even having any conception of that. Yeah, yeah. But I think from a very young age, I knew, like, I was, I was different. I wasn't like all of my friends. And I think when you're young, you, you desperately want to fit in. You sure. know, want to feel like you're like everyone else. Um, and then it was interesting because when we moved from Canada and moved to the United States, we lived in a more ethnically diverse area, and so there were other black students there, so that was really exciting. But then yet again, I didn't quite fit in because I talked proper yep. and I loved school. So for some of the kids, they're like, you know, why do you act like you're white? Right. And so this issue kind of, and then, you know, in schools where they had different tracks. And so you had kind of the honors kid track versus everyone else. Again, it became an environment where there were very few, you know, people like me there. And um, again, there was a sense that I was just a little bit different than a lot of, a lot of the peers that I thought were otherwise just like me. And, um, and then I remember when I was about 13 and my father said that he was going to take me to Uganda. And that was my first time, you know, since I had left when I was three to go back. And I was so excited that I'm finally going, you know, back home and everyone's going to be like me. They're all going to be black. Yeah. And, and I get there and I was devastated because I couldn't speak the language. Yeah. And I look different. I look like a foreigner. And so everywhere we went, everyone would stare. And I remember thinking, I still don't fit in. Right. <laughs> and so it's just, you know, as, as an immigrant, you're not quite, you know, from the country that you're from, but then you're not quite 
the country you're in, and so it's this constant place of just just being a little bit different. My mom I think told now me that straight I'm older, up that I'm not African. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's not true. You are, <laughs> and I am. <laughs> I agree. You tell her. <laughs> yeah, I sure will. Um, I think as I've gotten older, I can appreciate that difference. I I feel lucky that I feel like I can navigate you know, a lot of different cultures because I had a foot in so many different realms from being yeah. American to being African American to being African. And, but as a young person, like it's unsettling that it doesn't quite feel like there's a place that you fully fit in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And did it get worse at Harvard? Do you think? No, I think by that time I had started to settle in myself and I knew the pieces of each parts of the different cultures that I fit in. So I knew what I loved about African-American culture. I knew what I loved about being African. I knew what I loved about just being American. And so at Harvard, I was heavily involved in the African business club and I had a lot of really great friends there. Um, I had a lot of friends that were African-American and then obviously friends of like all races. So I feel like as I got older, I got much more comfortable in my own skin about who I was and, um, I fit in a lot of different groups in different ways. And then there are things about African culture I'm not loving, and not just African, but like my Ugandan culture and my tribal culture that I love and don't love, and same for really all those realms. Right. So I can appreciate those differences and, and really settle in the places that feel comfortable for me. Did you, um, so from externally, even mm-hmm. at Harvard, did you feel like there was any biases that you experienced at all, or did you maybe just float above all that because you knew where you fit in? Yeah, they're definitely biases. I, I work in human resources, and I'm painfully aware, um, you know, there are structural biases and challenges that are created for, for many groups. Um, there was a great story. I listened to a speaker at work, on, and her specialty is called intersectionality. And um, I'm sure I'm going to misexplain it, so I don't want to <laughs> do too much, but the story she shared that I think is a really compelling story was um, how for many years faculty were men. And, um, and frankly, even students were men, right? Like it, that just, and then over time they allowed women students and then over time they allowed women faculty. And so she was talking about an experience when she was one of the, you know, first, or I think when they first started allowing women faculty at a particular university. And so the faculty, kind of lounges and things were on the second floor and there were no restrooms for women. Yeah. And it made sense because when there, when women weren't faculty, they, you know, it was just men. And so everything about the building and the structure and the policies were all, you know, because the expectation is that the faculty would be men. And so even as they started to open that up and allow women there, they still had to update all the structural things that, you know, were built around the assumption that faculty would only be men. And so you can apply that to, you know, anything. For a right. long time, you know the place that black people were supposed to have and other minorities and people of color. And, and there are a lot of structural things that were intended for some people and not so much intended for others. And um, in addition to the individual, because I think individuals do have a responsibility to work hard and make opportunities for themselves, but I think we can't also deny the fact that there are some structural factors that that play a role. So you, after, was it after Harvard, or it looks like it was before Harvard, where you worked at Ernst & Young and in Procter & Gamble, and this is when you started on, from move from auditing into the human resources world. 
Um, yes. What what made for that transition? Um, wh- what was the experience like? I guess you could talk about whether it's at Ernst Young and, the hum- and then at Procter and Gamble, and um, why did you move down the, the human resources path? So I entered into public accounting because, frankly, my whole family is accountants, and so when I joined Inroads straight out of high school, I was gosh seventeen years old. I'd gone and done my interviews, and I came back and told my dad, hey, I have these five or six offers. Which company should I go to? And him being you know, an accounting professor, saw PricewaterhouseCoopers and said, oh, that's an excellent company. Go work there. Yeah. And so that's where I started my internship. And that really is how I ended up on the road to public accounting. I was working. Um, I found accounting interesting, and so I did it in school. My first degree, I have a specialty in, in accounting, and um, I did well. Um, because my clients liked me and and I found the work pretty easy, but it wasn't meaningful to me at all. And so about three years in, I knew that was not the career I wanted to make of my life. And I went, did a little bit of soul searching. And that's part of why I went back to get my MBA to really kind of hit a reset and rethink what I wanted to do. And that was also where spiritually um, I got a lot closer to God and my faith became incredibly important to me. And I felt led to to go down the route of human resources. I also had an internship um, this summer between my two years at Harvard where the internship was in marketing, but they gave me a special project reporting to the head of HR. And I absolutely loved the work. And it was so clear to me that, you know, I'd rather be a head of HR than a CEO. And that's kind of when I made the decision to to change my route. That's cool. What about it drew you? The role was that um, Procter & Gamble is a promote from within company. And so they had this idea that every summer when they got these interns, influx of talent, you know, with different perspectives, they wanted to make sure that middle management got a chance to hear, and senior management as well, got a chance to hear these outside perspectives. So they had this program where interns could sign up to have a side project in addition to their core kind of intern role to work on a really big strategic question that the company was dealing with. And the point was to get these teams of really bright young people with different perspectives, a chance to kind of come up with proposals. And then at the end of the summer, we were supposed to be able to present them to the CEO and the board of directors. And I was very fortunate in that I was asked to lead, kind of lead the group. So one of the interns is a leader and, and kind of shepherds people through and makes sure that everyone has what they need for their projects. And so it was like I was kind of running my own little organization and I had yeah, to train I'm everyone. Yeah, like 60 and, people, and, right? Yeah, yeah, I had to train all the teams. I had to co-lead as well. We had to train all the teams and set up all the presentations and lead all the meetings and, you know, make sure our teams were effective. We didn't actually do any of the work with them. We just had to build the structure and make sure that they had what they needed to be successful. And it was awesome. And I loved feeling like I was serving the teams I was working with. And they told me how great of a time they had in the program. And it was incredibly fulfilling. I could see the impact of the work I was doing. Everyone was incredibly happy and it just, it absolutely spoke to my soul. And, um, I decided that was what I wanted to do. So it seems to me that leadership is also a strong trait that that starts to appear here where you're not just, um, you're not just doing whatever you do, but you're also leading other groups of people. Is that something that you sought out or, um, is that just something that just kind of came on you? I'm definitely willing to do it. Um, my brothers would call it being bossy, that I enjoy <laughs> telling people what to do. Um, and 
I don't. I, I like coordinating large groups of people. I've always yeah. enjoyed that and coordinating efforts. And I think part of how my brain works is if we're at point A and we want to get to point Z, the way my brain works is very quickly it kind of calculates a route that if yeah. we do A, B, C, D, E, F, you know, like this, we'll get to Z. And so because that's so clear to me, um, I do enjoy coordinating efforts and work and groups of people and, and just getting stuff done. So you you moved on from this internship to a a regular HR role within within uh, Procter and Gamble as well. Procter and Gamble. So yep. what what made that? Did they just recognize you in this internship program you did, or how did that happen? Yeah. So I at the end of my internship, I was given a full time role in marketing, which is what my real internship was in. But I had a good friend, and I told him, you know, I'm not going to accept the um, marketing intern offer. I actually want to do human resources, and at the time. I had asked everyone, you know, if I want to do human resources, what's the best company I can go to? Um, as you know, I like kind of being at the places that are the best. Yeah. And um, everyone told me that GE was kind of the gold standard in HR. So I'd applied to GE and right. had gotten an offer. I was going to work for NBC as an HR manager. And so I had to come back and tell Procter & Gamble that, you know, I wasn't going to take their offer. But during the course of the summer, I'd had the, you know, great pleasure and and blessing to work closely with the head of HR. And so when I told him that I was going to decline the offer, he asked me why. And I said, well, I actually don't want to do marketing. I actually want to do human resources. And then he said, oh, well, I'll give you a job in HR then. And I said, oh, well, thank you so much. But, you know, NBC. everyone told me that G. Yeah, everyone told me that GE is kind of the best in HR. So I remember him being like, oh, well, I don't know if I would <laughs> say it's the best. <laughs> right. Wouldn't you agree, Mr. Nuttenwork, for, uh, for exactly. GE? Exactly, Mr. Head of HR, that you're number two. Right. Precisely. So um, so he was like, well, no, 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 no. You know, I think certainly it's, you know, one and two between P&G and, and, and GE. But he said, you know what, do me a favor. I want you to talk to one of my vice presidents and just have a conversation with him. And so... I had the conversation, and he gave me really an offer I couldn't refuse. He said, um, we really would love for you to come work for us, and if you do, you can work directly on my team and work for me, and I'll mentor you, and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, you know, I don't know anything about HR. I've never done HR before. And he said, that's fine. I understand. And um, it was good. It was an amazing opportunity. It was incredibly difficult. Um, but it worked. And I learned a lot, and I'm incredibly thankful that that's kind of where I started my HR career because I really do think that Procter & Gamble is world-class when it comes to HR. That's um, that's pretty incredible. I mean, it's just a story yeah. after story of you handling your business really well and awesome opportunities coming your way. Um, I think there's actually a scripture in Proverbs 18:16 I love that says, uh, a, a man's gift makes room for him and it brings him before important men or a woman's make gift makes room for her and brings her in front of mm. important people. And so yeah. if you, if you just do really well, um, you know, you, you, you do, uh, you, you do yourself a service by creating awesome opportunities. And, and it's just, it just seems like over and over again, that's what's happened for you. Did you recognize it that way hap- as it happened or were you just doing your thing and, and these opportunities came along? Yeah, I remember when I had to make that decision between going to GE and going to Procter & Gamble. I remember that was a really difficult decision. 
And in fact, the only reason I even made the decision is I was negotiating. I was ready to accept the GE offer when they made it, but I was negotiating on salary. Right. And so they had told me that they would, you know, have to think about my salary request and then come back to me if it was possible. And so in that period of a week or two weeks is when Procter and Gamble called, and that's when I ended up making that decision. But I remember at the time chatting with my younger brother, and what became clear to me, I mean, I was petrified of the Procter and Gamble role because the job that he was hiring me in was to replace someone that had been doing HR for 10 years. Wow. And I had never done HR. And so I wasn't qualified to do that. And I told him, you know, I don't think I'm qualified. He said, no, that's fine. I'll, you know, I'll give you a different kind of set of roles and tasks because I understand your background, but we have a hiring strategy where, you know, you're the kind of talent we want to bring in. And so we want to make that investment in you. And so I was scared. And um, I remember as I chatted with my brother, what became clear is that if I went to the GE job, I knew I was confident that, you know, in my own power, I could kind of make things happen. Right. And if I went to the Procter & Gamble job, it was clear to us that the only way that would work is if God showed up for me yeah. and and helped fill the gaps, right, which is what he does. And and I felt that that was the way I was meant to go. And, and it was an experience that helped to build my faith because it was very hard. Sure. But um, God did show up for me, and it was great. And I grew a lot, and I learned a ton. And, I, yeah, I wouldn't have changed it. So I know HR is one of those places where you basically, you know, it's a lot of privacy issues related there. So as much as possible, um, can you talk about, first of all, what does it take to be successful in that line of business? And and even more basic than that, what is an HR professional? Yeah, so if I'm just to talk about the core function of the work. There are generally two types of HR roles. One is what we call um, generalist roles, and the second is specialist roles. So there are a number of disciplines in HR. People generally think of hiring and firing, um, recruiting, or learning and development sometimes, training. But there are a number of disciplines, including employee relations. So what happens when, you know, there are disputes between a manager and an employee or the employee and the company and so we have people that are really specialists in investigating and, and making sure that we end up in a good outcome. You have specialties like compensation, so the folks that design how the company pays people and, and all the processes that are involved in updating that pay periodically, annually, or whatever the cycle is for the company. There are people that focus in performance management, so how we do annual assessments and kind of assess performance and drive performance. And so there are a lot of different specialty areas in HR. And a specialist generally will really focus in that subject area, and they'll consult for the entire company in that subject area, or they'll help build the process for the entire company in that subject area. Then you have what you call generalists, and generalists are generally aligned with a line of business. So as a generalist, you know, you'll be a partner to maybe a business leader, and you'll be that business leader's single point of contact. And so your job will be to understand that business leader's business and then to also understand HR. And so when they have 
um, a staffing question or a compensation question or something about how to build a highly you know, effective team, they'll come to you, and then you will also interact with the specialties, the specialists in the subject areas. But really your job is to deeply understand the business and the strategy and to understand enough about HR to either give the leader what they need or go get the expert opinion and then, again, be that single point of contact. Are you considered on par with that business leader? When you say on par, what do you mean? Like, um, so kind of two, two parts to it. First of all, when you say business leader, you mean like, you know, the, um, the person is in charge of the manufacturing division of a company. You're that person's general HR. Is, is, it, is it right that you're that person's HR generalist? Then when you yes. say a business and leader? They, I mean, manufacturing would be true for a manufacturing plant. It could be in a company where there's like a product leader that owns yeah. a particular product. Then you could be there. It could be um, someone that owns you know, a certain platform. So yeah, whatever, however these companies organize their business leaders could be manufacturing or different things. But that's yeah, like a senior a VP leader, level person that you'd be there. Yeah, there. exactly. And then are you on that same par? Like, are, so are you considered equivalent to them or are you like, like, do they consider you like an assistant level person? Cause it sounds like a pretty prestigious role from what I'm hearing. It depends. So there's some companies that maybe don't fully appreciate what a strong HR leader can do, and they may treat them more administratively. But I think if a leader understands and if that HR person is really skilled, then absolutely you should be on that leadership team. One of the biggest compliments I can remember in my career a couple times, there was one where, um, you know, my business leader, he was the vice president, and somebody asked him a question, and the first thing he said is, have you talked to Miriam about that? Mm -hmm. You know, and... And that, to me, just showed that he respected my advice, and, um, and that was great. And so, yeah, I think if you're good at what you do, then the business leader really does respect your domain expertise and the areas, you know, that have to do with the organization. And frankly, anytime you get to be very senior, you generally are no longer doing the manufacturing, no longer doing the coding, no, not really what you're doing is leading a large organization. Right. So a large part of their job is spent either on strategy or on figuring out how do I run this organization effectively. So many of their issues are people issues. And I mean, I, I would talk to my business leaders every day, sure. every single day. Because you're, yeah. you're put, helping them put out fires. Mm-hmm. And or I wonder, manage properly so we don't have as many fires. True. Okay. Or prevent the fires. So what yeah. kind of person, if, if uh, some young professional or somebody who's maybe not young in their career, what kind of person mm-hmm. would want to do either a specialist role or a generalist role, but be in the HR part of a company? Yeah. I actually think um, almost any kind of person. I think the things that you probably need to be able to enjoy. If you're going to be a specialist, you should be service-oriented because you really are an influencer, right? You aren't the business leader. Your job is to advise and support the business leader. And so if it's important, to, if you get a lot of pleasure out of supporting people, um, and maybe you don't always like the pressure of like being the one on the hook, but you want to be that, that side person that gives advice, that's a trusted advisor, it can be very lonely at the top. Right. Um, as a CEO or as a head of a business, like you don't, you're not interacting with your peers a lot. You're mostly interacting down, and so that HR person can ends up being if if there's an effective relationship that ends up really being someone that you can bounce ideas off of and a bit of a peer. And so if you enjoy playing that supportive kind of role, then I think it's an awesome job, awesome job for you. Um, on the specialty area, if you like 
being really, really deep, a deep domain expert in a particular thing and literally right. being kind of the company expert in that thing, then again, that's a really great role um, because you advise and you set policy and standards and kind of the procedures in that area. And so that can be really exciting. And then obviously there are different subject areas. You know, if there's some areas that are more analytical and so um, there are HR jobs that are like analysts and you're dealing with a lot of data and trying to make sense of that and, and think through how you make people decisions in a really data-informed way. Um, if you really like public speaking and kind of teaching, you can be in learning and development and do training. Um, if you love doing investigations, I, I mean, I think HR is such a broad field. Right. Um, a lot of interests, you could end up finding a specialty within HR where you can spend your time doing that. So after this, after uh, your time at Procter & Gamble, somehow, now I'm a super nerd, so I think the best of the best is where you went next, and <laughs> that would be moving to Google. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't know. I just think working for Google in general is a pretty prestigious thing in this day and age, no matter your uh, persuasion, because they're doing all sorts of cool things. But beyond that, you were there at a very senior HR level. So now you're in the seat of being able to make a lot of influential decisions um, in a, for a person of color at a company who, by many public accounts, struggles with diversity and those type of things. But also just in a general way, helping guide and direct and advise, like you said, the direction of the business leaders there. So um, what took you to Google and, um, and what did you what were you kind of doing there? Yep, and it's um, I had a great gig uh, at Procter and Gamble, and the guy that brought me in ended up being the head of HR. So it was also a difficult decision to leave there. But I had a lot of family in California, and ultimately, I I wanted to be close to family. Google was the only company I applied for. So if I hadn't gotten in, I probably would still be with Procter and Gamble. Wow! Um, but it really was just that Procter and Gamble was based in Cincinnati, and I was kind of isolated and alone there. And all my family was in California, which is where Google was was based. And so that's why I applied. So that's why you applied to Google. What were you doing while you mm -hmm. were there? So when I went to Google, I started as an HR generalist, um, supporting leaders in our tech organization. And what does that, that mean? Because awesome. it's a whole tech company. Like mm -hmm. the tech organization, what do you mean? Uh, so our engineers. Uh, so at Google, we have what we call tech, which is all of our engineers. We have GNA which is like finance, all the support functions, and then we have our sales organization, right? They sell. So if you think about the engineering organization, you can think of all the products we have. So we have, um, I don't even know all the names anymore. Everything keeps changing. But we might have like cloud or we might have YouTube or we might have, you know, our app. Mm -hmm, exactly. So I was, you know, supporting different vice presidents and, and senior vice presidents in different aspects of our um, engineering organization. What are some, can you tell whether it's there at PNG, what, can you give us a flavor for what are some of the kind of problems you solve, the cool projects you work on that you can talk about to, to let us know like what the, the gig is like and the type of influence you're able to have? Um, so I can share at a broad level, probably not specific projects, but sure. The sorts of questions, I think business is all about questions, and depending on what part of the business you're in, you're answering different sorts of questions. But the kinds of questions that, you know, someone in P 
people operations, which is what we call HR at Google, might think about are things like um, how do we retain great talent, right? Um, Google is well-known for having really talented people, which means our competitors, you know, would love to have them. And so how do you, as we grow bigger, and maybe people feel or might start to feel like they're not making as big of an impact, how do we make sure we still can keep our best engineers versus them going off to the newest hot startup, right? So that's a problem that we have to think about how to solve. Or one that you alluded to, um, right now our employee base doesn't reflect our consumer base. And we know that if we don't have people that, you know, we want to serve everyone, and so if we don't have people working for us that really reflect everyone, then we're probably, you know, slightly out of touch or, or not meeting some needs. And so how do we think about making having a workforce that more accurately reflects, you know, the people that we serve? Or another question could be how do we um, – every year we do a survey to kind of understand how people are feeling, where the business is doing well, where maybe we could improve – and so as we get those surveys, how do we make changes in the areas that, you know, we're not doing as well? How do we make sure that people feel like their performance is being fairly evaluated? Or how do we make sure that, you know, everyone feels like they have an equal opportunity to succeed? And so those are the sorts of questions that we grapple with in people operations. Is there one, um, and I don't know, if, like I said, if you can talk about specific projects, but is there a, a story or two you could tell about a fun problem you had to solve or a challenging one that you had to deal with that um, either on a micro level or a macro company level that was like, man, I got to sink my teeth into that. And it used everything that made me want to come to the HR arena. So I can share in a broad way <laughs> without going into too much specifics. I remember one of the projects I really enjoyed. Um, we had to change business strategy for a particular part of the business. And um, and it was a really big priority for the company. And so the CEO had one of his executives, brilliant guy, um, kind of lead the charge. And the challenge was that this he was an incredibly talented, incredibly brilliant man, but he didn't know this particular line of business. And so when he came in, I actually became a really important partner to him because I had been the HR generalist for that line of business for the previous maybe one or two years. And so I knew the people, I knew the issues, I knew their history. They'd had a series of different leaders. Um, and when he came in, his mandate was to make really significant changes to the strategy, which meant shutting down projects, um, which meant asking people to do things that, you know, they hadn't been on before. And up until that time at Google, really, engineers got to choose whatever they wanted to work on. So this was a big cultural shift to kind wow. of have a leader say, you know, you're not going to get to work on that anymore. Now you need to go work on this. And so there was a lot of churn in the organization. Mm -hmm. And I remember chatting with him and him telling me, Mary, my number one concern from a people standpoint is I don't want to lose, you know, our great engineers while we go through this transition. And so part of my challenge was how do I help people feel you know, heard and empowered and motivated when all these things were happening around them that they didn't like. And so some of the things we did, um, you know, I, I was trusted in the organization because I'd been around for a while and people knew me and, and my job was to help folks. And, and, and so as people were frustrated, they would talk to me and tell me, 
And so I would go tell the leader and say, look, these are some of the concerns and what people are saying. And he was awesome. And he would say, well, Miriam, tell them to come and talk to me. And I'll explain what's happening. So then I'd go tell them, you know, go talk to him. But A, he was brilliant. B, people were petrified of him because he was the kind of guy that was so smart that you'd take him a spreadsheet of your work and it would be a 6,000 line spreadsheet. And he'd look at, you would, would have worked on it for two weeks. He'll look at it for five minutes and say, your lines 873 and 647 are wrong. Go back and check your calculations. And he'd Jeez. be right. Like he was that brilliant. <laughs> so people were petrified, yeah. petrified of him. Right. And so I'd tell them, well, go tell him. And they'd say, oh my goodness, I'd never tell him that. Right. Partly because some of them were junior engineers and they're like, well, he might fire me. And, and even the senior people were like, oh no, I, you know, I'd never tell him that. And so I would go back and say, you know what, they're not going to come tell you. And he's like, why? And I said, they're scared of you. <laughs> and he was like, why? <laughs> right, because you're a genius. Your, egg, your big egghead scares then, them. So then he said, well, if they won't talk to me, then you go talk to them. Find out what they want and what's going on, and then you come tell me. So I was like, fine. So I did a series of like, you know, meetings with different teams, and, and we'd sit for an hour, and they'd tell me all their concerns and kind of things that they want. And so I did this with all the teams in the group, and I wrote a report for him right, and shared, like, this is what people feel is going well, this is the stuff that has people really concerned, these are the sorts of things that would start to make people feel better. And he was awesome. He'd start going through them. And the things that he could change, he literally would change, right? Mm. So people started to see that. And then I wanted people to get to know him because I was working with him all the time, and I thought he was great. Um, And so I told him, you know what, I also want you to start having lunches with teams. And so he said, fine, you know, put it on my calendar, I'll show up. And so I'd ask teams and their leaders to come, and we'd sit in a conference room with him, and he'd just talk to them, and he'd answer any question they wanted and so on. And then we had this practice um, called a postmortem, which is when something goes wrong, we have to do an analysis to, like, understand what happened, right? Why did it go wrong? And what do we need to change to make sure that something like this doesn't happen again? And so when I'd done the meetings with teams, one of the things they said is that, you know, the way this whole thing has been handled is really terrible, and it's been very stressful for us, and... And we think that, you know, there was a management mess up, and so we want him to do a postmortem, and we want him to sit and tell us what happened and, you know, admit the things that hadn't been done very well. And, um, and so I said, you know what, okay, if from your perspective it felt like a fail, I will ask him to do a postmortem. And I remember asking him, would you be willing to do a postmortem? And he said, fine. And so we did the postmortem, and the organization came, and he got up there, and he said, you know what, this is why I did what I did. And these are the steps that we went through. And from my perspective, this is how we measure if it was a failure or a success. And I, under, and I told him, I remember prepping for that meeting and telling, because he's brilliant. Keep in mind, he's brilliant. I right. said, look, it's very important in this meeting <laughs> not to show how brilliant you are, but to have empathy, you know, for kind of the grief that a lot of them are going through because there's been so much change. And they've had to shut down projects that they were really excited about. And they're being asked to work on things they didn't necessarily want to. And yeah. they're feeling frustrated. And so what I need you to do in this meeting is just show up as empathetic. We're not going to change course, but I want you to acknowledge some of the feelings they have. And I want you to, to come across as someone who's understanding. Even if we can't change where we are, at least someone who understands kind of where they are. Sure. And so he took that message and... And he went through and he talked about the things that could have gone better and he asked them to give him a grade of how he had done. And, but he did it. And, and I will tell you, um, at the end of, I don't know if it was six months or a year of us kind of going through this really difficult change, um, we also had this survey where we asked people, you know, they basically give upward feedback and they kind of grade their leaders. 
And out of five points, he must have gotten like a 4.9. Wow. Wow. And he already was really high, but like it had bumped even higher by the end of it. And and that to me was a huge win, you know, because we didn't lose engineers. We didn't have any higher attrition than we'd ever had in the past. And at the end, people rated him really great. And to be able to go through such a difficult time and, and kind of by every metric have done pretty well was really exciting and, and my job was to see him succeed and sure. so it just it made me so happy and I remember at the end um you know he had to do you have to get your performance review and so I'd asked if he would he would be one of the ones to kind of input on mine and I remember he said I am I'm so thankful that you know I went through this with Miriam I don't know how I would have done it if she wasn't here and um and even beyond that I, re- I remember a conversation I had with him in particular that was really really stood out for me where we had gone through all this stuff and I remember saying, you know, one of the things I love about you is that sometimes over this past year I've had to come to you and give you really hard news, right, about what people were saying, about people being unhappy, about people being upset, about maybe mistakes that were made. And I said all these were really hard things. And I've worked with other leaders where, you know, they take it very defensively. Sure. And they start to, to want to kill the messenger, right? Like, <laughs> maybe these things are happening because you keep bringing me these messages, right? right. right? And, and that's been a challenge where they've shut me out, right? Because I keep bringing them hard things. And I said, you've never done, every time I come and tell you something hard, you say, okay, Miriam, what do I need to do to fix it? And then I give you some suggestions and then you do it. Like, that was our pattern, always. That's what he would do. I would tell him the hardest, hard, I mean, these were hard things sure. to hear as a leader. I would tell him, and he'd be like, okay, how do we fix it? I said, I've never worked with someone like that, and mm-hmm. what, what made you like that? And he said, you know, Miriam, I used to work in operations, like a plant-type facility. And he said, what you learn very quickly is that if you kill the messenger, the message stops coming. Mm. And people will make one mistake, and then the team will make 10 more mistakes trying to cover that mistake because nobody wants to come give you the message that something is wrong. And so he said, I've learned that it's much better, you know, to keep getting that message um, so that you can fix it, and then you move on. And he said, "Um, the one thing I really appreciate about you is you always told me the truth. Mm. You always came and had the courage to tell me the truth. And that's what I needed. Cause if no one's, and you can imagine if people aren't telling the leader the truth, yeah, then how can they lead? Yeah. They can't. There's all sorts of things hiding in the dark that you don't know. Terrible things. Right. And the leader can't manage because people are hiding what's actually happening. And so, so anyway, it just, it was, it's really one of my highlights of my experiences in my career because we had such a strong relationship. And again, my job was to make sure he was successful and the organization was successful and everything I took him, he took it in the spirit that I was giving and we were able to make a difference. I think, I think that's an amazing story for a lot of reasons. Um, I've been in a position where I wasn't HR, but I was, I I was operations officer um, and effectively HR. And, and so I had to deliver messages up sometimes that were difficult. And, and I appreciate how you're saying I was going to ask you you know was he unique or did that always happen is it you and it sounds like he was the kind of person who wanted to hear the advice and there's such a bit of maturity and professionalism in that that I think is often missed 
Um, because people, when they're successful, they don't want to hear that they're not doing well. Sometimes I think it's human nature. I, I suffer exactly. from it myself, but to be able to take it and receive it and grow from it, I think that's a powerful lesson for people to learn. It is. I mean, it, I learned a lot from that. One of the questions I have for you was how did you develop the ability to gain trust? Because it sounds like you had his trust, but you also had the, the people who worked for him their trust as well. How, how did you do that? Um, a couple of things. I, I think the, the key thing is that people do need to feel like you care. Yeah. Um, I had a teacher that used to say, uh, students don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Yeah. And um, that might sound cheesy, but, but honestly, especially in the profession I was in where you know, people often needed to come to me at their most vulnerable times, right? A manager when he or she had a performance issue and didn't know how to do it, or a leader when they've messed up and there's a complaint, or, you know, an employee when when there's a performance problem and they could potentially be fired. If Like, like people a lot of times had to deal with me in really very compromising situations. And for me to be effective, I did. I needed their trust. I absolutely needed them to trust me. And I think um, I did the profession because it is so satisfying for me to help people. Yeah. And so I think that that intention and coming from that place became pretty evident to people. And so the people I worked, they really, they cared about me a lot and I cared about them and it was clear and they did trust me, you know? Mm. And so they would come to me and they would tell me the truth and they'd tell me how they were feeling. And, and I do think that was a big, a big part of how I could be effective that people would would really tell me the truth and then from there I could try to make things better or address things that seems like a primary skill for this role is or two of them I hear is one is being able to tell the truth honestly and mm-hmm. and to do it in an empathetic way and to be empathetic in general but to speak in an empathetic and empathetic manner I, I'm even myself this morning I was thinking even about my kids like um my my son said something like, um, you like this child the best because he always listens. Oh. And it wasn't him. Oh. It was a different kid. And we were like, yeah. no, no, that, that's not true. Like, we love you regardless of what you do. Right or wrong doesn't matter. The things you do may yep. be upsetting, but we love you regardless. But I had to look at myself where the next, you know, today, this morning, I was thinking about it still like, I got to be more intentional about dealing with him, about dealing with the issue as opposed to making it about him whenever something goes wrong, because then, you know, we can separate those two things and still be like, okay, we're on the same page, even though we got to deal with this real issue. So, yeah, but it it applies to what you're doing too. Absolutely. The Procter and Gamble head of HR, I remember him telling me that Miriam, I, I'll never hire an HR manager that can't fire someone, but I also won't hire one that enjoys it. Mm. You know, and so he wants someone that can have the difficult conversation, but is empathetic enough to know that, you know, it's not fun. Um, it's something you, you need to do when it's necessary, but not someone who's kind of sadistic and takes pleasure in it. So, Sure. No, I, um, I, I, I want to, you're in a critical role being on such a senior level in HR and having dealt with searching for new talent and on a very high level in Silicon Valley. And um, I was actually watching the, the we're uh, just the day after Mark Zuckerberg did his testimony for a couple of days on 
Capitol Hill. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Cory Booker, who's a senator from New Jersey, a representative, G.K. Butterfield, who's a representative from North Carolina, and a couple of other representatives asked him about representation in tech companies for minorities. And and you're in a position to be able to kind of speak to that. And I wonder, you know, as, as much as you can talk from, from your experience, obviously not on behalf of Google, what, what, what can be done to increase the numbers in tech? And more importantly, um, what can be done to retain more people of color in, in these tech companies? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you phrased the question that way because the first thing I was going to say is there's no use in bringing them in if it's a revolving door. And um, you bring them in, they aren't able to progress, they aren't able to thrive, they aren't able to have positive experiences, and so inevitably you lose them. Yeah. So I think that um, I think there have been strides in representation, certainly not enough, but I think over time companies have started to build different strategies to bring in more, um, everything from where they recruit um, to partnerships they build to even starting to build the pipeline themselves. And so you see all these programs aimed at younger kids to get them interested in STEM so that hopefully, you know, in the next 5, 10, 15 years, there are even larger pools that we can choose from. All that is critical. But I think a lot of effort needs to be set on how do we now create environments where they can thrive, right? And then that they'll stay. And it's a combination of some of the systemic issues. So we talked before about structural things, right? Yeah. When for years and years and years, these environments only had a certain kind of person. And now you're trying to say, okay, well, no, we need everyone there. Understand there are systemic and structural ways um, that have been set up that sometimes you don't even realize that make it difficult because these people were never intended to be there, never intended to thrive. And so part of it is we have to really be honest with ourselves about what else needs to change, right? Do we have bathrooms for them on those yeah. floors? Not, not um, literally, but figuratively. Yeah. Like, is it an environment that they can actually thrive in? So those systemic challenges, I think, need to be faced. And then the reality is bias exists, right? And so, and, and it's, it's, it will always exist because there's no way for our brains to process all the information that it's exposed to. And so our brain has to take shortcuts. It's the only way that we can survive. Our brain has to have ways of recognizing certain patterns, of you know, taking shortcuts in data. But when it comes to making decisions about people, those shortcuts become very dangerous because they're based on stereotypes. They're based on your personal experiences. They're based on what the media is showing you. Right. And so what we have to think about is how do we slow down decision-making so that people can be thoughtful and intentional. How and, do we? How do we do that? Some of those. Um, part of it is putting structure around decision making, and so you know you don't just get to choose who's promoted. You have to say why they were promoted. You have to have criteria that everyone can see. Yeah. You have to have you know people that check it. You need to make sure, you know so there are different things you can do to slow it down by by adding structure, by having reviews, and then you know I was chatting with my husband. Um, Anytime we think of those processes, I think we also need kind of preventive and detective controls, right? If you know you have a system that's likely has a propensity to go off the wire, right, has a propensity to be impacted by bias, how do we think about critical parts of the system where we kind of put in checks? And so so if you're hiring, do we make sure that your slate that you're considering also has, you know, people of color? Yeah. And when you have these decisions, do you sit down before you release those results and look, do you see strange patterns? Right. If so can we audit certain things to make sure that, 
you know, bad things aren't happening. Because whether it's intentional or not, um, the reality is we live in a world that's biased. And the world is dealing with these problems just like the companies are dealing with them. So I think it has to do with our appetite um, and willingness to make big and bold changes to actually make progress. In well, you, you not only have administrated these very systems, you've created them, um, some of them. Um, if, if you were to, to have a wish list of a couple of things that you'd say, these two or three, and it may not be two or three, maybe 10, but these couple of things are some low hanging fruit that we can do specifically to, to put in controls, to throw, slow things down, to put in checks. What would those look like specifically? Yeah, I feel like the most meaningful ones are not low-hanging fruit. They're hard. Okay. They're very, very hard choices we have to make. One of the biggest challenges is, um, you know, all of us have a propensity to want to treat everyone the same. Equality feels sexy. It feels right. It feels fair. But then you realize that not everyone is facing the same challenges. Yeah. And so to get to equitable outcomes, outcomes where you don't see strange patterns based on race and gender, right? Because you don't want to. The people that get promoted, the people that get good performance reviews, the people that get, you know, high compensation, you want that to be agnostic of what color you are, what gender you are. You want that just to be purely based on performance. And so when you start to see really weird trends based on things like demographics, that's not what you want. And what you realize is that people aren't facing the same barriers. And so what that might require is different interventions for different groups yeah. so that you can, you know, get the sorts of um, results that show that everyone really does have an equal chance. Like and sometimes intervening sooner, perhaps, in people's lives, because by Absolutely. the time they get to the Google interview, they just don't they don't have enough to even be able to compete and have the same outcomes. Yeah. Or even if they do get in, like it's, you know, now when a manager sees one group versus another, even if it's subtle, even if it's just, you know, who gets the best assignment bias. Exactly. Who gets the best assignments? When I evaluate your work, what do I focus on? All these are subjective decisions that happen every day that are impacted by bias. I mean, for all of us, yeah. and a little bit of bias, you know, by a whole bunch of people in a thousand iterations, you end up with the sorts of results that we see. And so it's, they're really challenging. Does the stuff that's changing now seem to be working to you? I mean, these are, we are trying to reverse hundreds of years of, you know, a system being designed for some people to succeed and some people not to. And so these are changes that are not going to, work in one day. Um, certainly we're seeing progress, but it's, we want more, we want it faster. Um, so Do folks seem committed yeah, to it? We have it? a long way to go. I think so. The people I'm working with are. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and a hard problem. That's, that's the thing that we have to keep in mind. It's not just that, um, it's a hard problem. People can want to make progress, but it's a hard problem. It requires, you know, thinking about things differently. It requires trade-offs. Um, and even then you're not guaranteed you're going to fix it. And so it's challenging. Yeah. I think you're working hard on it and you're, I think your thoughtfulness about it is, is critical. I, I see a number of posts on LinkedIn where folks are discussing it. I think it's just, you know, co companies like Google, I'm sure I know I've heard this story about Bill Gates having a hundred year plan, you know, and 
I'm sure companies like Google are the same. And I, my hope is that included in that plan are these issues of diversity and pushing those necessary interventions back as far as possible because they have the power to do amazing and huge changes um, mm-hmm. with the requisite effort. Um, I wonder now, not only are you Harvard Business School graduate um, who's recruited by the top folks at Procter & Gamble and now working at Google, but you've also added to the mix um, becoming a, a real estate investor in your in your time on the side, which if anybody's thinking like me, I'm like, where is this side that we're referring to? So not only are you a successful professional over 17 years of experience in HR, commenting now at Google, but you're also decided that that financial freedom and independence is going to come through you also investing in real estate. Um, how did you make mm-hmm. that decision and, and um, kind of where do you think you're headed with that? I am so glad you asked that question because this is probably my biggest, biggest learning out of one of the biggest mistakes that I made that I like to share with people, especially younger in their careers as they just start out and think about what they're going to do next. So the background is that I've always been a type A um, list-making, high achiever, kind of check things off my list kind of person. And so I've always planned most of my life and, and generally gone according to plan. And I remember when I left college that I had a specific set of goals. I wanted to work for one of the top firms in whatever discipline I chose. It was public accounting, so I wanted to be at one of the big four. I wanted um, the way they work is they get a cohort of 30 or 40 kids that start every year. So I wanted by the end of my first year to be recognized as one of the top in my cohort. I was sitting for the CPA exam. And so about at the time that I took the exam, about 10% of test takers were able to pass all four parts of the exam in one sitting. It was a comprehensive exam over two or three days. And so my goal, of course, was to be among that top 10%. And so I had these goals. And um, a year later, I had hit all of my goals. Um, Oh, the other one was that I wanted to be known in the office as one of the top performers. And so a year later, I'd hit all my goals. It passed the CPA, was well-known, you know, within the office as a high performer, had been put on the, you know, kind of the A, a list client that was the best client of the office because of my performance. I had done my CPA um, and I was working for the firm I wanted to work for. And I was miserable, mm. miserable. I would cry in the morning on my way to work and, um, and work was fine. It was great people, a great company. I just was miserable. And I would, you know, cry on the way home. And, and I remember just being flabbergasted because I had hit all of my goals. I had hit all of my goals and yet I was miserable and I remember asking, like, what, how can this be? How can I have achieved my goals and still be so unhappy? And that started for me a couple of years of soul searching, right, about what is it real, like, what do I really want? And the lesson I came away with is, you know, there's no use winning a, winning a race if you're running on the wrong track. Right. And what I realized is that I had set my goals in a very haphazard way. Mm. The common theme is I just, I wanted to be the best. Right? Yeah. And all that I did, I wanted to be among the best. And sure, that feels good. But other than that, it was kind of a hollow, it wasn't a thoughtful, thoughtful setting of goals. And so then after that, I said, okay, well, I need to think about setting my goals differently. The reality is I work really hard. Um, I'm reasonably bright and reasonably motivated. And so 
many, you know, most goals that I set, I probably can hit. And so it's not about whether or not I hit a goal. It's about have I set the right goals. Sure. And so that's when I started to think much more thoughtfully about what do I really want? What is really important to me? What's really going to make me happy? And so part of that was what is the career I want to do? And I had to think about who am I? What do I care about? What kinds of questions do I enjoy solving? And that led me to a career that, you know, was not one that I had originally thought of. Very few people at that time went to Harvard to do human resources, you know, and I remember my parents laughed at me and people were like, why would you do that? But when I had done my soul searching and thought about who I was and what was important to me, that was the right path. And so the reason I ended up in real estate is because part of what's incredibly important to me is that I have time, time to spend with my family, my children, my husband, um, time to, to be there for my parents and friends um, and to do the sorts of charities and things that I want. Corporate is wonderful. Google is an awesome place, but it can be all-consuming. And for me to base all of my financial needs on having Google meet it, Google can, they pay very well, but um, what they require is a lot. Yeah. And I realized that that, that, wasn't, that would come at the expense of other things that were critically important to me. And so I thought I need to find another way to be able to make the money that can help support my family, but that will still enable me to have time, you know, to spend with them. And so I started reducing my corporate time to part-time and spending more time starting to build up passive income cash flows that would then enable me, you know, to meet some of the other goals that are important to me. And so... Um, I'm really happy about the place that I'm at right now, and I think I'm I'm well on the way to building the kind of life that is actually going to make me happy. Well, and, if any of hitting uh, goals that really matter, if any of it looks like the previous level of performance, I have no doubt that uh, when we reconvene for another discussion, we'll we'll all be looking for um, advice on how to follow in those footsteps. Cause that's a very wise perspective to have. A couple of questions before we close. One of them is, what are three books you'd give as a gift? Oh, such a great, great question. Um, I love to read, so let me narrow it down to three. One is a book called The Shack, and it's a book about forgiveness, a man whose daughter was brutally raped and killed, and his past and kind of conversations with God and how he ended up on the other side. And not hating the person that did it, but really being um, very merciful, actually speaking at his hearing um, against the death penalty. Um, so anyway, it's, it's an awesome book about wow. that path to forgiveness. It's incredibly powerful. If there's anyone you need to forgive, that is a book to read. Then there's another book called Play to Win, and I can't remember if it's Play to Win or Play Not to Lose, but it talks about the difference of living your life kind of with the fear of losing versus really going out there for the win. And I think that was really powerful. I did a speech on that one time that I really enjoyed. So that's a great book. And then the last one is just, I'll throw one in fiction, because I read a lot of fiction. Um, I think it was called Half a Yellow Sun. It's by a Nigerian author. um, And she talks about one girl's experience um, immigrating from Nigeria to the United States and kind of her experience. It's a really great story. I remember I read it from cover to cover. I didn't sleep till I finished and it was, it was great. Nice. Very nice. And what do you do for fun? I feel like I don't have any time. <laughs> um, I love to dance. I go to movies, hang out with my husband, with my daughter. Um, 
I'm very busy, so unfortunately at this particular moment don't have as much time for fun as I would like, but but yeah, I try to do those things. And with family, hanging out with family is always great. It is, and we can't wait to see you here again over at our place yeah. when now we're living close Absolutely. to each other. So I, I've enjoyed the conversation. I, I would love to have you on and get in the future to hear about how your real estate career is coming. Sure. And, um, and, and my guest today has been Miriam Kudiza. Miriam, thanks for joining me today. You're welcome. Have a great evening. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Google Play. Mm-hmm.